illustration to get us going uh, as to what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I, it's been said of me by some of you even, um, and uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but this is what people have said of me is that I'm fairly competitive. Um, some of you have played games with me. Um, so, uh, as I was thinking about some illustrations today, I, I was thinking back, and um, it, there's a couple things that I get really competitive about. One is board games, and the other one uh, is uh, sports. When I play sports, or even when I watch sports, I can get fairly competitive. Um, you know, some of you are going to understand this illustration, and some others aren't. Don't shut off, I, I, just because you don't understand this first one, but I, I play fantasy football. If you don't know what fantasy football is, basically, you choose a bunch of players from all over the league, and then how well they do gives you points on your own team. And then you play against another te- person that has all these different players from all the teams, and if you get more points than them, you can win. And for years now, I've been playing fantasy football, and so half the time I'm watching football games, I'm not really watching to see which team is going to win or how it's going to to work. I'm rooting for my specific players, um, and that does create some problems. Uh, You know, if uh, the Bills are playing and somebody that's on my fantasy team is playing against them, I need to make the choice. Uh, Do I root for them or do I bench them? How do I handle that? Um, But I've been in many situations where myself or someone else who's very into fantasy football... Uh, is watching a game and they are asked, who do you want to win? Uh, and who do you want to win? So there's two teams. A lot of times there's two teams I could care less. You're looking at two teams and it's like, I don't care who wins. They have nothing to do with my life, obviously, and they've got nothing to do with uh, even my division in football. So I'm just watching the game for fun. But since fantasy football has taken place, uh, I know I've been in situations where for me, and I know this has been true for others that I've been with, we're watching the game and somebody will be like, right, you got to pick a team. you got to root for one of the teams. And the truth of the matter is, uh, I don't want to take the side of either team because I don't care. In the sense of, uh, there's two teams there. One can win, one the other doesn't have to win. But what I'm watching that game for is not to watch whether one team is going to win or the other. I don't need to take a side because I'm rooting for my players that are getting points for my team. And so really, in a very real sense, I'm not taking any sides because I'm only playing for myself as I'm watching that game. Now, this is crazy to think that I actually consider myself playing, even though I'm doing nothing except choosing a player that's actually doing something. It's the greatest way to think you're involved and be lazy. It's awesome. But So that's that side. The other thing is board games. I can get fairly competitive with board games. And if you've ever played a game in which there's trading, so if you think uh, Settlers of Catan is one of the ones that I've played a lot, or there's Monopoly, there's other ones that maybe you have played that you would involve trading with other players within the game. And those games I find a lot of times I probably shouldn't play because there's times where I get very upset when somebody won't give me what I want and there's times where it gets very frustrating. But there's been several times where I've been in a situation in a board game where I need, uh, or two people need something. And uh, if, if you're in a position in the game in which you either have a lot of resources or you're in a position where they know that you are going to want to trade, I've been in situations where I've had two people trying to get me to trade them the same item. And it's, they give me all the reasons why I should choose them. They, give, they tell me what they can give me in, in response to what I can give them. And I've been in situations where two or three people, and basically what they're asking me is this, um, who do you want to give this to? Who do you, whose side are you going to be on? But most of the time in those situations, because if people are that desperate, usually that means you have the upper hand. And if two people are that desperate, then a lot of times I'll just sit on my cards. 
And it makes people angry because I'm not trading with them. But I don't want to choose a side. I'm playing for myself. And I don't care if you need something from me. Now this sounds terrible, but in a game this is okay. In life this isn't how you should live. But just because you want something from me doesn't mean that it's to my benefit to give it to you. And so I don't take a side, but I'm playing for my own win. That's the point. And that's how, as I think about fantasy football, I think about board games, a lot of times it doesn't matter. People will ask you to be on their side or teams will want you to be on their side, but sometimes we end up just rooting for ourselves. Now, as I said, in real life as a person, this would be a selfish attitude. That's not the attitude we should have. But we are merely humans and we have this understanding of this very truth that a lot of times in games or when there's an opportunity for us to win or for us to look at our what we need, even though if others want, the, uh, want us to join them or to be on their side, there is something even greater. Trading away in a game something that I have to somebody that might give them the win isn't worth it if I can win with that same card that I'm holding in my hand. I say all that, that's kind of a weird illustration, I know, but as we get into what we're going to look at in Joshua chapter 5 today, we are going to see that that understanding that we have, that we don't need to take sides, but we need to do what is best for us, uh, God has that same attitude, and God is justified in that same attitude, because God is everything, and he's created everything, he is the one that should always be the one that is most important. And God, even in his own mind, and in his own life, and even what he does, he is about himself first and foremost, and everything else flows from that. But we'll get to that uh, as we get to chapter 5, and I've got, that's just a glimpse of where we'll be, but we'll kind of break that down as we look at today. But, real quick introduction, if you haven't been with us, or maybe if you even have, but there's some pieces you've missed as we've been going through the book of Joshua Uh, The main thing we've seen in Joshua so far is this idea of courage, that courage is to be had. We've seen that Joshua himself, as the new leader of Israel in place of Moses, has been called to have courage in taking the promised land. He's been called to have courage to take the land that God had promised the Israelites. But we've also taken time to see that courage is not how the world says courage is. It's not being a tough guy, but the courage is trusting in God's promises. It's trusting in God's laws, and it's trusting in God's presence. That God is the source of the promises and laws and presence that we need to live by. And when he is there, we can have unlimited courage because he is the one that is with us. The mission of courage was not just for Joshua as an individual, but we saw it was for all of Israel. As they come into the land, that they would have courage and faith in God throughout the whole process of going into the land and taking what God had already given them. And so as this happens, we see courageous faith uh, that is seen, not only through the Israelites, but also through Rahab. We see that there is an understanding that faith is about knowledge, emotion, and action all working together. It's knowing who God is, it's feeling uh, connected with God, but it's also, and really most importantly, it's about doing something with that knowledge and emotion, and it's acting on our faith. And so we've seen that's a true, courageous person, is one who will know God and, and will do what God has asked them to do. That is courageous faith. We've seen Israel now cross the Jordan River as we've gone through the book up through these first uh, five chapters. As we've seen, Israel has crossed the Jordan River at flood stage to get ready to take the land that God has given them. 
And as that happens, we see that they have obedience, but they also take time for remembrance. They set up an, uh, an altar, a, 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 a statue, a symbol uh, through, of the stones, a monument to remember what God has done. They also take time to have, make sure everyone is circumcised and they take the Passover. And in doing those, they, were, they showed and celebrated their covenant with God. They showed their covenant with God through circumcision and they celebrated their covenant with God through remembering and observing and celebrating the Passover. And that's where Israel has been. So now we're to the point where they have crossed the river, they have shown their faith, they have reminded themselves and also celebrated the covenant that God had made with them, the promises that God had made, and they are now at the edge. And as we've already looked at, we know that the people of the land are afraid. There's no spirit within them. They're not ready to fight. They don't want to fight. They are scared to death because they know what they have seen God do in the life of Israel. And so all the people of the land are afraid. And it is now time for Joshua and Israel and the armies to start their conquest of the promised land that God had already given them. And that's where we find ourselves as we come to chapter 5 in Joshua. We're only looking at a very few verses this morning. But we're going to look at a key element that we need to understand as we go through the rest of Joshua. If we don't understand what God is saying, what we're seeing here in chapter 5, then we won't understand anything that happens in the rest of this book. And honestly, we won't understand anything that happens in the rest of history or in the rest of the whole book of the Bible, the whole Bible itself. Because there's an important element that we see God reminds Joshua of and in the process reminds us as well. So we're going to be in chapter 5 starting in verse 13 and we are going to... Read to the end of chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. These are all the verses we're going to look at. Now obviously we'll bring in some others throughout scripture. Right before we're about to look at the fall of Jericho, the very first city that would be defeated by the Israelites, and more specifically, defeated by God for the Israelites. We're about to see that happen in chapter 6. We're about to see that start. But before that even happens, we have this encounter. This encounter between Joshua and this guy that comes out of the middle of nowhere. And what we're going to see today as we look through all this is where is the true source of all courage? And we've already talked about it. We already know that it's God himself, that it's Jesus. The source of our courage is God. And now we see, as Joshua has this encounter with this man before they go into Jericho, that God reminds Joshua again of his presence. And he reminds Joshua also of his purpose. See, that's our first point this morning in this encounter. God declared his presence and purpose to Joshua. God declared his presence and his purpose. And I'll show, let's look at that and see why we see that, where we understand this. 
God declares his presence. And so let's just look at what happens as we look at this passage. Joshua is by Jericho, no doubt looking at the city, seeing the walls, trying to think about what the next step would be. He lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. A warrior appears before Joshua. A man of war, there's no question about that. He's got his sword drawn and ready to fight. This man is one that is uh, obviously uh, later on the commander of an army. He's going to be decked out. He is a warrior. He is ready to fight and Joshua sees this man. And of course Joshua approaches this man. There has to be some fear and some wondering of what exactly is happening. So this warrior appears before Joshua and Joshua asks a very interesting question. And I think it's a question uh, that, before, this is before Joshua knows who this is, but it's a question that I find very interesting, and the answer is even more interesting as we see what the answer will be. But what we see here is this question where Joshua says, are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? Of course, Joshua is concerned as he sees this warrior that is out there ready to fight, and he's wondering, are you going to fight against us, or are you going to fight against our enemies? And so Joshua asked this question uh, out, of pres- out of preserving his own life and also knowing what, uh, what to expect. And he asked, whose side are you on? That's basically what Joshua asked this man that at this point he doesn't know who he is. Whose side are you on? And Joshua wants to know that. Going back to my illustration, that's when people are pushing you to either trade you or to, you're watching a game and you pick a side. But the question is, is which side are you on? Joshua asks about his allegiance. Joshua asks about his allegiance. Now we know because we've already read this and we've heard this before. And we know that the commander of the Lord's army is God himself. It's Jesus, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment. Now Joshua didn't know this yet. But really then Joshua is asking God, whose side are you on? But the answer here is... Something that is so easy to miss, it's such a simple answer, but we miss it if we don't look. And this next verse, when the, this commander of the armies of the Lord, who we're about to find out, the answer that this man gives Joshua, when he says, whose side are you on? This is the answer we see in verse 14. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. This word no could also be translated neither. What is the answer of the man? He says, I'm not on anyone's side. Neither side. But I am on what side? The side he is on is he is the commander of the army of the Lord, of Yahweh. Of God, the God of Israel. In other words, this commander of the army of the Lord is for God and for God only. He is not primarily for a group or a person, but he is for himself. He is most concerned with fighting for himself, not fighting for a specific people. And so we see in this answer some truth here. Uh, First of all, we do see this man declare himself to be the commander of God's army. Uh, Many theologians and many people who have studied this passage, and I would agree that this is what we would call a Christophany. 
It's an appearance of Jesus before the incarnation, before he becomes a man, before he's born to the Virgin Mary. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. A lot of times there will be figures that will, will show up that, that seem to be a pre-incarnation form of Jesus, the Son of God, who we know has existed eternally. So it makes sense that we would see him in the Old Testament. We saw it back with Abraham, if you remember those stories of Abraham and, and uh, the Lord comes and talks to Abraham as a man. And so we've seen this here again, that this is believed and I believe is indeed a pre-incarnation uh, appearance of Jesus himself. This is God through the Son. God the Son is here and he's talking with Joshua And we see that God does not take sides, as I already said. I got ahead of myself. But this was a Christophany, and we see that God does not take sides. The question is, is are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the answer is neither. That's God's answer. That's Jesus' answer. That is the Son of God's answer here. We can't miss this. Because now not only is he showing his presence to Joshua, because he's there and ready to fight, But he's also showing his purpose. God's purpose in Israel. God's purpose throughout all history. God's purpose in our lives. Specifically, God's purpose in Israel was to glorify himself above all else. See, up to this point, God has been good to the people of Israel. He has called Abraham out, and he has been good to the people of Israel, even when they've walked away, even when they've complained, even when they didn't go into the promised land like they were meant to and they wandered in the wilderness. All of those things, God has been good, God has been gracious, God has been loving, but do not for a moment think that the reason God exists is for Israel. Israel does not, is not there... Uh, God is not there for Israel's sake, but Israel is there for God's sake. And what does this mean? Well, I want to, if you flip over your notes, there's some verses I want to look at. Uh, As we think about God and how he has worked in the people of Israel up to this point in Joshua. And I'm going to look at several verses we're going to read. We're just going to go through these quickly. We don't have a ton of time. But we can see that the truth of the matter so far in what we've seen God working in Israel, it is for God's glory. It is not for Israel's glory, but for God's own glory. We'll start by seeing that God created Israel and all his people, for that matter, for his own glory. God created Israel for his own glory. Isaiah 43, 6-7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and from my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Very creation of people, the very creation of God's people, is to show his glory. To show him to be greater and more mighty and more awesome than anything or anyone else in all of history and all of time. God created us for his glory. He did not create us, he did not create Israel for our own glory, but he created them for his as we continue on, we see that God shows mercy to Israel. And this is, this is later on in Isaiah talking even more in the future of Israel. But God has shown mercy to Israel. And we see that God shows mercy to all people for what reason? For his own glory. Isaiah 48, 9 and 11. This is a powerful verse. And this is God speaking. He says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? 
My glory I will not give to another. God is clear that Israel, any mercy that he shows to Israel, any mercy that he now even shows to us, is not ultimately for Israel's good and ultimately for our good, but first and foremost for his glory, so he will be praised, so that his name will be praised and his name will be seen as glorious and mighty and awesome. That is why God does what he does. That's why he shows mercy. Not for the sake of the person being shown mercy, but for the sake of who is showing mercy. Some more specific things we see. We see that God placed Pharaoh over Israel for his own glory. Back before the Exodus, when Israel was in Egypt and Pharaoh was holding back the people from being able to leave, we see that the reason that happened was for God's glory. Romans 9.17 as it refers back to Exodus, but it says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Through the very pagan king of Pharaoh, who would take his God's people Israel into captivity, God did all of that, Not for anyone's sake other than to show his glory, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, that his power would be seen as Israel is able to be, uh, is able to exit from, from Egypt and he had power and a victory over Pharaoh in which he could show how great he truly is. See, once again, God did not primarily take Israel out of Egypt for their sakes, but for his own. When they got to the Red Sea, we see the same thing happening. God rescued Israel at the Red Sea for his own glory. Psalm 106, 7 through 9. This is David going back and talking about the past. And he says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. But they rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as though a desert. If you remember back to this, this is when Israel is out of Egypt. Uh, They are at the Red Sea. They can't go forward any further and the Egyptian army comes up behind them. They all think they're going to die. They beg to go back to Egypt. And at that point, God says, Moses, raise up your hands, raise up your staff and the Red Sea is parted. And that is a beautiful story. We've learned it from our youth, we've seen it on movies that we've watched, and we understand that the Red Sea has been parted, and the people go across, and then the Egyptians are drowned behind them. But let's not think that somehow that was primarily, and I'm using that word again, primarily for the good of Israel. It was for the good of Israel, but primarily it was for God to show his power, for God, for his namesake, so that he might make known his mighty power. That is why he split the Red Sea. Later on, as we look through the history of Israel, God preserves Israel in the wilderness for his own glory. Ezekiel 20, 13 through 17. And this is just a section of it, but it says, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. Then I said I would pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. My eye spared them. I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. When Israel abandoned God and said, never mind, we don't trust you. We're not going to go into the promised land. God could have said, fine, then I'm going to start again. 
God could have wiped them out and said, I'm just going to grab some new people and I'm going to actually have them go into the promised land. And he could have wiped Israel out, but he didn't. But once again, why does this verse say he didn't? It wasn't for their sakes, but it was for his. So that his name would not be profaned in the sight of the nations. That he acted for the sake of his own name. He wanted the nations to see the power and the might of him. That's what he wanted to do through preserving Israel. <clears throat> One last verse we see in 2 Samuel seven twenty two and 23. <clears throat> God gave deliverance and victory to Israel. We're now at the same point in history, in a sense, where in Samuel we're reading about God is going to give the land to the people. God is going to give the land to Israel. He's going to deliver them from Egypt and give them victory in the land. And that's what we see happening now. And 2 Samuel 7, 22-23 talks about it and says God gives this deliverance and he gives this victory for his own glory. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. I believe this is David in a prayer to God. He says, uh, There is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing them a great and awesome thing by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Once again, here, David is praising God for doing what? For bringing Israel out of Egypt and giving them victory, driving out the people before them. But what does he say? He says, in order to make himself a name by doing great things for them. It's not that God isn't doing great things for Israel. It's not that he doesn't love Israel. It's not that he doesn't look at them as his people. All of those things are true, but he ultimately is not working for their sake to make them look better or to make them feel better. God is working so that he would look better. His glory would be seen. His name would be praised. That's why God exists. God does not exist to serve us, but he exists so that we may serve him. And that's what Joshua is seeing back when the commander of the Lord's army comes and he says, I'm not taking sides. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. That he is there to fight for himself. Now indeed, as we look, we obviously see that he will fight on the side of Israel. And he will give them great victory. But he's reminding Joshua, this isn't for you. This isn't for Israel. This is for me. And also, we'll also see in just a few sermons, we'll see that Achan, who is an Israelite, has to be executed because he sinned against God. So God put the fact that he sinned against him at a higher plane than the fact that he was one of Israel's children. And so we see that God is for God. God is for his glory first and foremost. And everything he does points back to that. Now, it's going to be important that we understand that concept as we go through Joshua. Because there's going to be some confusing passages. We're going to try to figure out why God is doing what he's doing. We need to remember and we need to understand that God ultimately is for his own name. And he is for purity. He is for righteousness. And he is for his own glory. So the second point we're going to look at this morning is we understand God's glory. And that's what he cares about most. We're going to see how Joshua responds. You see that Joshua responds in humble worship. After the commander of the army of the Lord says, Now I have come. And we read this. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? 
we see Joshua's response to understanding the glory of God and understanding that God is for his glory, that under, to understand that this person, the pre-incarnate uh, son of God, is there in front of him. And what does he do? He doesn't, beg, he doesn't beg for help and say, hey, okay, that's great, but can you be on our side this time? He doesn't try to barter with him. He doesn't try to prove himself. He doesn't try to say, well, I'm Joshua and I've been following you, so you should really be on my side. No, none of that. Joshua falls to his face. Joshua fell to his face on the earth and worshipped. I think we've lost an idea of what worship is. Sometimes we think worship is just feeling really good as we sing a song. And I'm not saying there's not a piece that is good to feel good while you sing a song to praise God. But true worship is when you fall to your face before God, realizing that you are nothing compared to him. And that's what Joshua does. He falls to his face in honor and awe. He is in awe of God. Are we in awe of God, or is he just someone that, is there for our benefit, or are we in true awe? Do we give him honor? Do we worship? And Joshua is just, he has nothing else to do to fall. We see that throughout scripture, by the way. When people worship God, when they see God, when they come before him, they fall to their face because they realize they are nothing compared to the God who they are worshiping. We also see through this process, Joshua submits to God's lordship. Joshua submits to the lordship of God. And he says, what does, your, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua understands that none of this has anything to do with him. He is simply there to serve God. God is not there to serve him, but he is there to serve God. And everything that God is going to do through Joshua and the Israelites is not because God owes something to Israel or God owes something to Joshua, but it's because God chooses to love and show and preserve Israel for his glory. And Joshua knows that and he asks, what can I do? How can I serve? You see, his worship not only provided humility and awe, but it also showed him the lordship and how it submission before God. And then we finally see in this last verse, and we've seen this before in the person of Moses, and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua removes his shoes in light of God's holiness. He remembers and he's told this is a holy place. This is a holy time. Because God is here, and therefore he is set apart from the rest of the world, and Joshua does what he's told to do. Notice it says Joshua did so. He didn't complain, he didn't ask why. He took off his shoes because he knew that he was standing in a place that was holy because God was there. So, God, so Joshua humbly worships God in awe. He, he submits to his lordship, and he understands and obeys his holiness. This is how Joshua responds, and we too have the same opportunities to respond to God in the same way. Yet so many times we respond in a completely different way. So we see today that God is God. God is for himself. God is going to glorify himself through everything, and that we need to worship him as the glorious one. That's what Joshua did. That's the example that we see in Scripture. We see throughout the, the Old Testament, and we'll get to it in the New, where God shows that indeed, that all that he does is to make his name great. Unless we think that somehow God is arrogant, or that God is selfish because he wants people to praise him, and he wants his glory to be seen above all else, 
let's just remember he's God. We can't have that same feeling. I can't sit here and say, you should worship me. That's wrong. That's idolatry. And that's selfishness. But God is God. There is none like him. There is none greater than him. So if we are to live for his glory, then it makes sense that he needs to care about his glory because he wants to show himself to be the savior and the redeemer of the world. And God is not selfish or arrogant. He is living in truth. He is the greatest of all greatness. And he is the one that should be lived for. And he believes that himself. He has to. So that leads us to just some ideas for ourselves this morning before we go to communion. Just to think about this, the first question is, have you encountered Jesus Christ in your own life? Joshua had an encounter with God, the Son of God. He had an encounter in which ended up changing him, and it ended up just bringing him to his knees, his face, because he had an encounter with God. But have you truly experienced uh, Jesus Christ in your own life? Have you come to a place where you have accepted Jesus' gift for you, that he came as, he, you know, here he shows up as the commander of the Lord's army. Later on, he shows up as a baby. He's born into this world. God himself takes on flesh to live a, a human life, to live a life in which he doesn't sin. He dies on a cross. He's beaten and killed, and his blood is shed so that he can forgive our sins, so that we can trust in him and put our lives in him and say God Jesus thank you for dying for us I put everything in you and then he rose again and said I am the king I am over all I am the one that deserves all the glory because I even have victory over sin and over death and if we follow him and we accept him and we come to him in repentance and we turn away from our way of living and we turn towards him then he says he will save us he will save us for our good and His glory. Because when someone gets saved, when someone says, I no longer want to live for my dirty, disgusting, sinful self, but I want to live for Jesus, when that happens, life change happens and a miracle happens and God is glorified. So have you experienced, have you encountered Jesus Christ? Have you come to the place where you've really given your life to him? It needs to be today. It needs to be now. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Trust in Christ today. Couple questions for all of us. Do we view God in humility as our awesome Lord? I already talked about this briefly as I talked about how Joshua responded when he came before the commander of the Lord's army. He fell to his face. But in First Peter chapter five, I want to read a passage and just ask ourselves this question. Are we in the same place that we will truly worship God for his awesome glory? As our awesome Lord, First Peter five six through seven. It's about humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, but notice this: hum- humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The truth of this verse is often we read, listen, if you, if you cast your anxieties, if you put your concerns on God, he cares for you and he'll watch out for you. And that is all true. But don't think that that's for primarily just for your sake because he, you deserve it or because he owes you something or because he needs to serve you. But we need to humble ourselves. Why? Because we are under the mighty hand of God. God can and will do anything. And when we humble ourselves to realize that he is so much greater than we will ever be, 
He does care for us. He does love us. He does take away our anxieties, but he does that so that we will focus on him. We will focus on his mighty hand so that we will be humble and know that he is great, greater than any other thing or any other person. So do we view God in humility or do we somehow decide that in our pride that God somehow owes us or that he needs to serve us or that what I need I need God to bless me, but the truth is God wants us to bless him. And he will bless us, but it's not for our sake, but it's for his. And we need to be blessing him. We need to be living for him. And that's what we're going to get to next. How are we to worship God in light of his glory? Because this is where rubber meets the road, right? So we've, we've talked about God is glorious. God cares about himself above all else. He shows his glory and everything he does is to make himself look good so people will see his name and they will not profane his name, but instead they will worship his name. That's what God wants. If we understand that, what does that mean for us? How does that mean, what does that do in our lives? How does that work? Well, we are to worship God in the light of his glory. In understanding that, Joshua fell down in worship and he declared that he was God's servant. And he took off his shoes to understand that God is holy and we can do those same exact things. And the Bible speaks very clearly about how we should live in light of the glory of God. We're going to go through these fairly quickly. But the first thing is, as Christians, as his people, we need to pray for his glory. Psalm 79, go into the book of Psalms. Psalm 79 is where we'll start. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation. That's normal, right? We pray for help. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. This is a prayer in the book of Psalms. And if we are to pray, we need to be praying for God's glory. Not just pray for help because we need help and somehow God owes us his help. Not just pray for deliverance or praying for atonement for our sins. We can pray for all those things, but keep in mind the motive for praying is so that God will be glorified and his name will be great. That is what we pray for. Also a few pages over in Psalm 115, we see the same idea. Psalm 115. Right in verse 1. <clears throat> Beautiful text here says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God's love and faithfulness is not for our own glory or for us to feel like we deserve it or for us to feel like it is owed to us, but it is so that he will be glorified. His name will have glory. As this psalm says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We need to be praying that God will work in our lives. We need to be praying for help. We need to be praying for forgiveness. We need to be praying for other people. We need to be praying for all of those things. And prayer in all of those ways is so vitally important. But we need to keep our motives pure. There's a reason why at the end of our prayers, we say, in Jesus' name. A lot of us do that, but a lot of us have no idea why we do that. Just because that's what you do. It's part of the formula. You pray and you say, in Jesus' name, amen. No, we pray in Jesus' name in the sense that we are praying for his glory. We are praying for his reputation. And that should change the way we pray, by the way. 
It should drift us away from all our selfish thoughts and desires that we want to be praying for and instead be praying for what he wants. Praying for his glory and his name. Not only should we pray for his glory as we've seen in the book of Psalms, but we should live for his glory. We should live for his glory. So many of us today are caught in this world in which it says you need to live for your own glory. Live to make yourself look as good as possible. Live to give yourself as much money or as much prestige or as much whatever that you want. You need to live for yourself. But the Bible is so different. The Bible says we don't live for our own glory, but we live for God's glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Many of you know this verse. It says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here we go again, once again. Whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you do, everything is to be done in what? The name of the Lord Jesus. To give him praise. To show his reputation to be great. That's Colossians Chapter 3, but we also see this in 1 Corinthians 10, another very famous verse that many of us have memorized, but I would dare say many of us fail so many times to actually do. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, and this is talking about eating to idols and all those things, but the principle here is very clear to see. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There is no question here. Why should we live? What is our purpose for living? It is not what the world says to make ourselves great. It is not to leave a legacy. Although all those things can be good in and of themselves, they're not bad. But ultimately, what we need to live for is to make his name known. One of my favorite songs that's been out right now recently is Casting Crowns. When they, uh, the um, Only Jesus, I think it's called. And the idea of the fact that I don't want to live for a legacy. I don't want to live for myself. The only thing that's worth living for is Jesus himself to make a name for Christ. And that is what the Bible says. It says we live for his glory. That will change the way we view this world if we will just take the time to not only pray that he will be glorified, but also live so that he will be glorified. And finally, we should serve for his glory. We should serve for his glory. This goes along with living, of course, but uh, in, a, in a more specific sense. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, it's talking about spiritual gifts. But we can't miss why we have spiritual gifts. We don't have spiritual gifts just so people will look at us and say, oh, wow, you're so gifted. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, we don't have spiritual gifts even so that people will be benefited. I mean, that's part of it. Like, if we serve somebody else, that's great. They will feel good. You will feel good. It's great. But that is not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason that we are to serve one another, either in church or just in general, why do we serve one another? First Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. First Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our giftedness is not for our own sake. It's not even ultimately for the sake of others. It is ultimately for the sake of God being glorified. You see, I think a lot of us base our service to others based on 
what we like to do, who we like, what can best serve another person that they have a need or something maybe I have a need and I need to serve to make myself feel better or this is what God says to do so I should serve somehow, some way. And listen, it's good to serve no matter what. But the purpose, the motive is so God will be glorified. That means that sometimes you might need to serve in ways that you don't want to. It means that sometimes you might need to take a place uh, of service in this church or serve someone that you don't really maybe get along with, maybe you don't really care for, but you know what? God is leading you to serve that person, and by serving that person, his name will be glorified because it's not about you. And that also goes to maybe you're serving, maybe even right now you're serving in a place where nobody sees it, nobody gives you any credit, and you're getting frustrated. It's like, well, how come nobody ever thanks me? How come no one ever thinks that uh, what I'm doing matters? The truth of the matter is, is if you are not serving for me, you are not serving for others, you are serving to give glory to God himself. And God is looking at that. And you can serve knowing that anything we do is for his glory and not our own. And so it is true, as we look at Joshua, as we look at the rest of scripture, that God is no doubt most importantly, looking out for his own glory. Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that he has loved us. I'm not going to minimize the fact that in Romans chapter 8, it says if God is for us, then who can be against us? That is still a truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the truth is that God is for us, but not ultimately. He is for us because he's for him. And you say, well, I don't know. Romans 8 seems to be that he's all about us. Read Romans 9. Romans 9 follows Romans 8, and Romans 9 is very clear, and it says God chooses whom he's going to give mercy to, God chooses whom he's not going to give mercy to, and it's all for one reason, it's all for his glory, it's all for his purpose. And so yes, God is on our side in the sense if we have come to him for salvation, just like on Israel, they were his people, but ultimately we can't put our trust in the fact that we are owed something by God, we need to serve him. First and foremost, because it is his glory that he cares about more than anything else. I do truly believe that if we truly think and we really look at the word of God, and I'm speaking to myself here because there's so many times that I live for my own glory, but if we will really take the time to see God's glory in scripture, that we will pray for his glory, that we will live for his glory, that we will serve for his glory, that it will transform every area of our lives. Because we'll no longer be looking at ourselves and how we can best traverse this life so that we can get through it in the most comfortable way possible. But we will looking, be looking for every opportunity we have to show him glory, to honor him, to praise him. Even when we come together at church, we'll have the opportunity to see his glory. To see his glory. In just a moment, we're going to be taking communion. And you say, wow, this sermon didn't have a whole lot to do with Jesus' death and didn't have a whole lot to do with his blood being shed. (coughs) But yet it does. I'm going to read this one passage as we get ready to go into communion. And then, and as I read this passage and say these last few words, if the worship team and the men who are coming to help, please feel free to come up. But the book of Ephesians, many of us know this passage. I'm going to finish with this as a benediction, but I think this is more appropriate now to read before we go into communion. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. 
He said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." As we now take some time to come and celebrate communion with one another, we're remembering the death of Jesus. We're remembering that he died for us, that he shed his blood for our forgiveness. But let us not think that as we take these elements, that this was done because we deserve it, that that Jesus came to die for us because, well, because he's all about us. Jesus came to die, to shed his blood, to break his body, to give his life to save us, as Ephesians just said, to give us an inheritance, to save us by his blood, for the praise of his glory. And so today, as we take the bread and we take the juice and we remember his death, we remember it together, we remember what he's done, we remember who he is, we remember all of those things, we take time to consider what part of our lives aren't glorifying to Jesus. Because he saved you and he saved me so that we would glorify him. So if there are things in your life that you know are not making him look good, then now is the time to get those right with him. To Say, Jesus, as I remember your death, I remember what you've done for me. I remember that you did this not just for my sake, but you did it for your sake. And I want to give you glory in my life. Now is the time to think those things through, to pray, to repent. It is also a time to remember the death of Christ together and to remember with one another that God is to be praised through this. See, as we do this, this is not just for our own inward thoughts. It's not for us to just take the cracker, take the uh, juice and think about how great it is that Jesus died for me. But this is an opportunity to celebrate and to proclaim and to show God's greatness to each other. And it's an opportunity to show God's greatness to the world around us as we take what we remember and we take it to the world outside of us. So that's the things that we need to remember this morning as we come to communion.